Father God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for these magnificent verses. And we ask this morning that you would speak to us and set our hearts on fire. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, yes, we are, for the last few weeks, we've been looking at uh, Romans chapter 8, and uh, if it's a magnificent chapter, if Romans are the Himalayas of the Pauline letters, chapter 8 is the Everest of Romans. And today, as we look particularly at verses 28 to 39, we come to the summit These are verses which speak, first of all, of the inevitability of troubles. Verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Those all things are listed later in verses 35 to 37, where Paul writes, Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. These are the sufferings that come from living in a fallen world the sufferings that come to all people that are caused because this world is subject to decay and death. But they are also the sufferings that come when we walk with God in a fallen world. And Paul knows his stuff. He spoke out of experience. He had been all through, through all these things. You can read it in 2 Corinthians 11 all except the sword, but that was to be added to his CV as well. Several years later, he was beheaded by the sword. If you live for God, with God, in a world that is opposed to God, in rebellion with God, then it is, as I said last week, like driving the right way up the motorway when everyone else is driving the wrong way. There will be smashes, and you will get hurt. And please don't think that as a Christian, life will go a little bit better for you than if you were not a Christian. Please don't think that tragic accidents won't happen. I'm sure that there was more than one Christian on that Malaysian flight who had prayed for a safe journey Prayer is not an extra pill that we can take that will take away the suffering. Prayer is, as verses 26 to 27 show, the calling from heart to heart, from our heart to the heart of God by the Spirit. Yes, we do see some wonderful answers to prayer. William Temple, former Archbishop, said, When I pray, coincidences happen. But there are many times when in the mystery of God, what we pray for does not happen. But that's not a reason for despair or for abandoning our faith. 
because these verses go on to speak of, secondly, the inevitability of the triumph of God. That's verses 28 to 30. Note the emphasis here in these verses on God. It is God who works all things for good. We really do need to resist shallow interpretations of this. It is not saying, as some Christians say, something I wanted didn't happen, but it was okay because what I got was better. It's the stories that we hear about the person who said, I couldn't have children, but God worked it for good. I had IVF, and now I have the most wonderful twins. Or I was deeply in love, but they married somebody else. I was heartbroken, but it was all for good because I met someone else who was just right for me. Or... I was made redundant from work, but it worked out for good because I got this fantastic new job. Those stories are great, and they show that God is merciful, but they are not the stuff of Christian testimony, and they are not what this verse is speaking about. We need to remember that for every person who couldn't have a child, but who did miraculously have a child, there are many more who never had a child. And there are many who did miss out on that love and never did meet anyone else. And there are many who were made redundant and who didn't get another job. But these verses are not talking about stories like that. When this verse says that God works for good, it is not saying that God wants to give us better circumstances in life. It is saying something much more radical. It is saying that God wants to give us not better circumstances in life, but a new life. And as a result of this new life, whatever circumstances come our way here and now, whether it's glory or a cross, we can face them with joy and peace, patience and hope. That's why verse 28 comes before verse 29. There's a clue there. It cannot be taken in isolation. The good that God intends for us is bound up with the foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification, which are spoken about. Now, today is not the place to discuss God's foreknowledge, his election, and predestination. I have done that elsewhere. The emphasis here is that it's all about God and what God does. And because it is about what God does... These verses emphasize that what is promised here is that if you love God, if you seek to put him first, either because you delight in him above all things or because you desire to delight in him above all things, there is a cast iron, rock-solid guarantee that God will transform you into the image of 
his son. This is what I can say from these verses. You will become like Jesus Christ. You will know God the Father in the same way that Jesus knows God his Father. You will be filled with his love, compassion, wisdom, courage, radiance and glory. That is the good about which he speaks and there is no better possible good. And this is all about the triumph of God. It is so that, in verse 29, Jesus might be the firstborn. First in human time, first in honour, first in precedence of many brothers. And as an aside, just in case you struggle with the reference to us being brothers or elsewhere in the Bible, that we're all sons of God, and you're thinking, why can't I be a daughter of God or a sister? Please remember that the Bible is read in many different cultures, not just our Western culture of today. And in our sin-ridden world, there are many places many places even now, where girls and daughters are considered to be nothing. Tim Keller, an American preacher, tells of the Indonesian woman who said that as a girl, she was nobody compared to her brother. Everything, she said, was invested in him, and he was the one who would inherit everything because he was the boy. And she spoke of the wonder of reading the Bible and discovering that as a follower of Jesus, she, who in her society's eyes was a mere girl, a daughter, a nobody, was not going to be a daughter of God, but a son of God, a full heir with full dignity and full privileges. And thirdly, these verses speak of the inevitability of our victory. Verses 31 to 39. We will all suffer. Sorry. I repeat, if you think that prayer means that you will experience less suffering than what you would have done without prayer, get real. But there are three promises that we can hold on to. Verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 37, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Verse 39, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. It was because Jesus knew the love of God that he was able to stand firm against the accusations and lies. Satan challenged him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself off the temple and he will rescue you. In other words, prove it. Prove it to yourself. Prove it to us. That little word, if, is repeated by the authority figures and soldiers as Jesus hangs on the cross. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, 
his chosen one. And for us, it will be those lies. Do you really belong to him? You're not good enough or working hard enough to please him. He can't possibly love you because of what you're going through now. You don't really love him, do you? He couldn't love you. You do realise that you are very, very insignificant. And it was because of the conviction of the love of God that Jesus was able to go through with the cross for the sake of the joy that was set before him. He didn't buckle. He didn't resort to violence. That could have saved him. He knew what he had to do, and he did it. And for us, with those doubts and with those fears, it is the assurance of the love of God that will enable us to go through the fire when it comes. It is the assurance of the love which will enable us to stand firm in the face of temptation and fear. And notice here in verse 34 the grounds of our hope and conviction. They're not our feelings. They are on the fact of Christ and of what he did and of his love for us. This passage speaks of how Jesus, four things it tells us. He died for us. He rose. He has ascended. He intercedes for us. He died for us. Verse 37 uses some strange language. It speaks of him who loved us. It puts it in the past. You would think that it should be him who loves us. But actually it is important that it's him who loved us. Because when Jesus went to the cross, he already knew us. He foreknew you. Even though you were not to be born for another 2,000 years, he knew you then and he died for you then. And so Jesus is not going to say, I died for you, but you're a worthless sinner. I gave my life for you, but I'm not going to give you strength in times of trial. I went through the agony and separation from God for love for you, but now I'm going to drop you into the pit and abandon you. Of course not. He was raised. Even death cannot separate us from the love of God. In the book of Maccabees, it's one of the apocryphal books that sort of added on to the Old Testament, and it has a semi-authority. But the saints are on trial. They're sentenced to death by the amputation of their limbs. They say to their persecutors, it doesn't matter. Chop off our arms. Chop off our legs. Because in the resurrection... God will give us new bodies and we'll have new ones. And Jesus is at the right hand of God. He has all authority. And Jesus, this Jesus who died and who rose from the dead, he is interceding. He is praying for you now. When many years ago, Alison and myself were going to work in Russia, 
we went on a two-week preparation course with others going overseas to work as mission partners. One couple were there who were going to Uganda. They had a two-year-old child, Thomas. Sarah, the mother, spoke of how she had heard news that an 18-year-old son of someone working in Uganda for the same organization they were going to work for had been shot and killed. She spoke of how fear gripped her for her child. She'd asked for prayer. People prayed that the family would be protected, that no harm would come to Thomas. But she had no peace, and the fear remained. And then she came across these verses that we've looked at today, and they spoke to her in only the way that the Word of God can speak. They spoke deep within her, and she discovered a tremendous peace. It was not that God guaranteed her that nothing bad would happen to Thomas. Rather, it was the affirmation that even if the worst happened, it would not separate her and it would not separate her child from the eternal love of God. I know that some of you are walking through great troubles. Some of you are paralyzed by fear. Some of you are struggling with a relationship that has broken down, that is breaking down. Maybe a child that is lost, or a hope that is constantly frustrated. Some of you are living with deep anxiety and constant pain. Some of you have had your heart broken, and you see no hope for the future. For some here today, Life does seem unbearable. Please be reassured. The fact that you are going through it does not mean that God has abandoned you. We are told that troubles will come. Secondly, God's purposes and victory are inevitable. I cannot say that you will not experience dreadful suffering. I cannot say that, but I can say this. You are predestined. You are predestined. You are predestined to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. One day, you will be like the risen Lord Jesus. And so thirdly, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Through him, through his death, through his resurrection, through his exaltation, through his prayers, through him, you, we, are on the winning side. To God be the glory and the power, now and forever. Amen.